Let's bow our hearts together in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we hear your words today. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Lord, we say to you, how can we know the way? We do not know the way. And we hear your words to us, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And Lord, we say to you, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And we hear you say to us, do you not know? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so, Lord, thank you today for this great, blessed hope that is ours through your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he is here today, that we can hear his voice through his word. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's such a blessing for us to have our missionary Joel White with us today. Dr. White is a professor with Greater Europe Mission in uh, Germany. Uh, His uh, wife, Tatiana, will be joining us in the second service and perhaps some other members of the family. Uh, Joel was with us last summer, and I said, Joel, if I knew you were going to be here, you'd be preaching today. And he said, well, I'll be back again next year. And so we're just delighted to have you here today. And so come uh, today, Dr. White, and minister the word of God to us. And uh, let's just open our hearts to the Lord and to his servant as the word of God is open to us. Thank you, Brian. It's a privilege to be here again. Last year, we were here for a um, sad occasion of my mother's passing, although it was a glorious time together to celebrate her life, but the whole family was here, and, um, uh, and I managed to get to a service. Uh, but uh, I, as I said to, to Brian, I'll be back this year, and hopefully most years now that we're a little freer in our schedules, we want to get back as many as much as possible in the summer to my hometown. Um, So uh, let me give you just a real quick update about what's happening in Germany. Um, As many of you know, I, or as has been said, I teach there a New Testament at a seminary called the Gießen School of Theology. Gießen is a town of um, about 70,000 just north of Frankfurt. We have about 130, 140 students um, preparing to Uh, go out into the culture, German-speaking world primarily, to plant churches, do the work of evangelists. Some go back into um, the churches they came from, their denominations. Um, But we're excited to see how many are planning um, to uh, be involved in church planting, because Germany really uh, needs that. Um, I was just recently in the city of Ulm, which has a beautiful um, cathedral, the highest in Germany, actually, the tallest, and a beautiful building, probably seats, oh, seven, eight hundred people. Uh, and I was there for a Sunday service, and there were probably 12 of us off in the corner for that Sunday service, average age, maybe 70, 
That's the state of the church in uh, Germany, and that's the reason we're there to train up a new generation and pray for a uh, revival um, there. Um, so please pray for Germany and pray um, for our uh, seminary. I hope you're getting our newsletters. We're in the midst of a big new building program. We found out that all of our buildings, which were um, just hastily constructed right after the war, um, are kind of crumbling away their foundations. So rather than repair them, we're in the midst of a capital campaign and right in the middle of building a big uh, new building that will house the whole campus there and have a little space for some outdoor uh, areas as well, which will be really nice for our students. Um, so much uh, for that. I want to preach to you today uh, from Matthew uh, 10. Uh, we'll read a longer uh, passage where Jesus um, sends out the 12 disciples, uh, 12 apostles that he has just called. And you'll find that in apparently Pew Bibles have come out of hiding, I heard. Um, and uh, so you can actually have a Bible in your hands after the um, corona uh, measures have been um, kind of taken back a little bit. So let's read um, Matthew 10, uh, verses 5 through uh, 42. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim to them as you go, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter it, greet the house. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Whenever they deliver you over, do not be anxious about uh, how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his, uh, uh, his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his, mas his teacher and a servant like his master. 
If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that's an old name for the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing that is covered will is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward." Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even a passage like this, which is full of difficult things for us to hear. I pray that you give us hearts that are willing to listen and, um, yeah, li- and follow you, regardless of what it costs, as Jesus um, requires of us. Give us um, the courage and the faith to do that, we pray today. Amen. Um, Germans are not particularly known uh, for their comedy. We don't think of uh, Germans so much as uh, a funny people, laid back. They tend to be more serious and um, scholarly and that kind of thing. But we've, kind, we've come to understand, once you're in the culture, um, that they really do have a sense of humor and we enjoy um, some of the um, talk show, uh, the comedy shows um, that uh, Germans produce, like all good comedy, it has to do with finding the aspects of your own culture and kind of making a bit of fun of them. And uh, just recently I saw a, a skit on a comedy show um, that was I found very interesting, and at least I found it funny. I have a bit of an odd sense of humor to begin with, so bear with me. But um, the parents of, of a newborn baby just came home and they're settling into their house with this newborn baby and looking at it and cooing and ooing and eyeing over it. And suddenly the doorbell rings and there are two very official uh, men there um, standing at the door and they say, hello, um, we're here to um, pick up your baby. And they say, what do you mean? Uh, 
uh, this is our baby, you can't take our baby. And um, they said, well, uh, actually, uh, yes, we can. You remember that vacation you booked online to Greece two years ago? Uh, yes, they said we did. And did you, you paid the $500 for two weeks at a luxury hotel? Yes, they said we did that. And it didn't strike you that that was pretty low, that price? And they said, well, we didn't really think about it. And then they said, well, let's look at the fine print. You clicked on that, right, on the internet. You click and say, I accept all the, um, the regulations. And, and sure enough, there in the fine print, it said, you know, the, the cost of this vacation is $500 and your firstborn baby, yeah? So the people were, what could they do? They had clicked and they had, hadn't read it. Who reads that? But they had clicked it. So they had to give up their baby and they were sad and hoped that they would have another one and they made a promise they would always read the fine print before they clicked on the internet. I found it funny, anyway. <laughs> Isn't it nice to know that Jesus doesn't bury the conditions of following him in the fine print? Here he says straight out, what he expects of us. It's not buried someplace. It's not something you find out later. It's right there in what he has to say to his disciples. And one thing is very clear when we read this passage. We're not dealing here with the sweet little baby Jesus in the manger anymore. Um, here is a man who knows what he wants, what God has sent him to do, and he's looking for the right kind of people to help him carry that out. And he lays it out very clearly for us um, to the point that it's a little bit uncomfortable to read. Um, and we can't look at this long section in any detail. I want to pick out a few points, uh, uh, look at the major sections of it, and help us to understand what Jesus is perhaps saying in this word which um, strikes us, I think, all as we read it as a very hard word from Jesus, perhaps one of the hardest sayings um, that we have of his hardest discourses. This discourse can be divided into five sections, and the first section stretches from chapter uh, 10, verse 5 to 15, and um, here we have it, uh, it, Jesus lays out the task that he's sending his, his apostles, who he's, he's just commissioned, to do. Um, in one word, the task is mission, there to go out and preach the gospel. And um, Jesus is about to send them forth on what we today would probably call an internship or a practicum, right? Um, they're about to go out and make some experience and uh, have some experience in mission and come back and report it and learn from Jesus. Uh, this is their first attempt at going forth. And uh, we realize then as we read through the entire gospel, we come to the end that we have the Great Commission. This isn't just for the apostles, although they're the ones who start out. It's for all of us to go into the world and preach the gospel. The New Testament emphasis throughout the New Testament, and out here as well, is that the church that Jesus is about to found is an institution with a task, and the task is the only reason that Jesus left us behind. We heard even today as uh, uh, Pastor uh, Brian uh, uh, led us um, in our thoughts about um, serving Christ that um, he's gone away and, uh, or, and in the music and he's preparing a place for us and he will come again. 
But Jesus says, in the meantime, I have something for you to do. I'm leaving you behind so that you can accomplish a task, and that task is to take my gospel to the whole world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a very um, famous German theologian because he um, stood up to the Nazis and paid for it uh, with his life. He was also a very profound thinker about the nature of the church in a time when it really cost a lot to follow Christ. And Bonhoeffer said at one point, the church is only the church when it is the church for others. Okay? It is only the church when it is the church for others. The church is not like other institutions where it's for the members. Um, whatever club there might be or association, it's all about who the members. The church has a distinct focus on those who are not a part of it. And that's very unique. And that's our calling, to bring the gospel to the world. We proclaim Christ to the nations. Uh, we don't have time to look at the details here of what Jesus um, said to them when he sent them out. Um, we can kind of generalize, I think, a few, about a few of the details. First of all, um, he says, don't take a lot of extra baggage. I think he's saying, don't make your own security your highest goal. Take no money, he says, take no supplies. Just move forward. And don't um, go when you're convinced that it's going to be successful ahead of time. Great missionaries and church planters and many others have um, understood this and moved forward even though everything looked like it was not going to um, work out. And in many cases it didn't. But in many cases God is blessed. And that's the emphasis Jesus is giving here. Risk something for the gospel. Don't wait till you have it all set up and all your um, T's crossed and I's dotted so you know that ahead of time that everything's successful. Move ahead in mission. And don't be con too concerned about your own comfort. He says, when you go to a city and you uh, are in a certain house um, that you've been invited to, then stay there. Don't move to a better place. Uh, that was probably a real um, temptation to be put in some place and then to find out it's not all that great and move, a, uh, move to a better location. Missionaries on home ministry assignment have that experience. I can remember one time we were in Maine. We have a church way up in northern Maine, which is just like the Upper Peninsula. It looks like the Upper Peninsula. The people are like people in the Upper Peninsula. They just have a completely different accent, but otherwise it's just like here. So we were uh, invited to this church and this wonderful family opened up their house, which was really tiny and they had three kids. And they were so excited that we came. My, we were, I don't think we had children at the time. It was just my wife and myself. And they had gotten um, their grandmother's bed and set it up in the living room, which was just big enough to hold that bed with a little space to get around it. And everybody, was going through that living room all night. So we're lying in bed and people are walking through that living room. And I thought, you know, maybe we could get a hotel or something. And I thought of this verse. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. And uh, you know, we were there three days and um, that family has become precious to us. You know, and we've realized they gave, they didn't have any money, but they gave all that they had for us. Um, so that's another emphasis. It's not about our comfort. And on the other hand, Jesus says, don't play the, or let people play the, you for the fool. 
don't stay where you're not welcome. It's not about success, but um, missions is also not about making yourself a pain in everybody's behinds, right? You can move on if people are not being responsive. Look for those who are open. Don't force yourself on those who are not. So Jesus gives a lot of practical advice about how to go about carrying the gospel to the world. And then in the second section, which is from verses 16 through 23, Jesus tells us what we should expect when we preach the gospel, when we take this task seriously. And we can sum that up in one word as well, persecution. Those who follow Jesus will, should expect persecution. And the description here makes that very clear. This level of persecution that's described here, of being dragged for before the um, courts or thrown into prison or even executed, is not yet a problem in our part of the world, but in many parts of the world it is. I think of the underground church leaders in China who, where it's gotten very difficult even in the last few years. They're constantly under surveillance. They're arrested, they're being given long prison sentence, and there are even some executions. I think of my brother's church, uh, Wes, who comes through. You're, you're always seeing some white come through here in the pulpit. But Wes, as you know, um, is planning a church in Scotland, and they never planned this, but the church has become a church of Iranians or Persians, uh, Persian speakers from Iranian, uh, from Iran and uh, Afghanistan. There's a minor minority there. And um, they have about 150 believers there who are gathered now. Among them, Ali Unsudeh, who were members of an underground church in Tehran. They were found out and denounced by their own families and had to flee for their lives. Or Ashaya and Omid, who became believers in Glasgow, but have been shunned by their families and have been attacked by family members. Welcome to the world of millions of Christ followers throughout the world. And um, by the way, Wes writes that many of these people in his community who are Persian speakers from Afghanistan are very concerned about their loved ones. They expect them to be persecuted and killed for their faith or even being associated with them uh, as believers. So we need to pray for them. That's the world uh, at the edge of, the mi of mission where the gospel is being taken forth. We shouldn't uh, be surprised by it, Jesus said. They didn't treat him any better. The, uh, the student is not above the teacher and the slave is not above the master, and that's exactly how they treated him. Still, Jesus wants to encourage us, and that comes in the next section in verses 26 through 31. Jesus starts off by saying, you don't have anything to fear. There's only one person in the universe anybody really needs to fear, um, and it is precisely that person that the followers of Jesus do not need to fear. They don't have to fear people who kill their bodies, but the only one you, who you would really have to fear is the one who is able to condemn your soul and your body to eternal damnation. That's not the devil, by the way. Often in our medieval imaginations, we think that, or when we see the, what's come out of that period. The biblical view, of course, is that God is the judge 
of the living and the dead. And yet, um, anyone who fears him with a reverent fear has nothing to fear. That's a wonderful paradox, isn't it? We see that actually in Moses when he's bringing the people out of Israel. And God says to him, don't be afraid because the fear of the Lord has come upon you. Yeah? If you have a reverence for God, a, a, a respect for him, that's what this kind of fear is, then you have nothing to be afraid of because God is on your side. I think at least this reminds me of what, God, what Paul says in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Won't he who did not even spare his own son, but rather gave him for us, give us all things? Isn't that amazing? The love that God has for his son is inestimable, unfathomable, and yet God gave his son to save us. You may not think you're so valuable, but God does. He's given the very best to save you. And so you have nothing to fear. He is on your side through all of this. That may not prevent you from facing what Jesus talked about, persecution, but it allows God's disciples to persevere in the midst of it through trials and huge challenges and even death itself. We come to the fourth section where Jesus names the condition, and this is probably the hardest for us to hear. Uh, when Jesus says, in a very actual simple construction, um, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. Many have struggled with this saying on a theological level. level. There's been all sorts of uh, books written about it and articles. What, how could we deal with this theologically? Um, you know, in the meantime, I'm not all that, I don't even think of it on those, that level anymore. For me, this is simply a matter of basic respect and decency. Uh, what would you think of me if um, my wife came later and I didn't even acknowledge her? if I wouldn't say her name. That's just, that's a lack of basic respect for someone who is important in my life. And Jesus claims us as his own. He says our name before the Father. Um, and he's called the disciples by name. They're all listed here in the first part of the chapter and most of them we never hear of again, but Jesus thought their names were important and he confessed them uh, as his own. I'm often actually amazed by how bad we treat God, often worse than the people around us. It's, for instance, quite clear to most of us, we say this all the time, that we have to accept everyone for who they are. But somehow when it comes to God, we want to Make him more like us. Yeah? We have these ideas of how he should be. How about we try accepting God for how he is rather than changing him? Somehow we think he should conform to our conceptions of what God is. Good luck with that, I would say. God is an incredibly self-confident being with a strong character. He never backs down from pursuing his purposes. The Bible makes that clear. And he has revealed himself in his word, and he has not changed one bit since then. 
And whether you like the way he is or not, that really doesn't matter to him all that much. You take him as he is or you don't take him at all. And that has to do with Jesus as well. We confess Jesus um, as our Lord. You know, years ago, probably 20 years ago now, I, I noticed a very disturbing tendency in my life. I started to realize that in conversations with non-believers, I was avoiding saying the name of Jesus. I was saying things like, I believe in God, or I'm a Christian. But for some reason, I backed away from mentioning Jesus' name. I've got news for you. I mean, those first two sayings, those two, two weird ways of describing ourselves mean nothing to people anymore, right? I believe in God. That can mean a dozen different things to people, and nobody cares. They might think it's a bit quaint. Okay, he's a bit spiritual. Or, I'm a Christian. Uh, that basically means, in our culture, you voted for Trump, right? Now, I don't really want to get into that at all, but that is definitely not the core of the gospel, right? The core of the gospel is, I'm devoted to Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. So the next time you're talking with someone, why don't you say that? Why don't you say, Jesus is my king, or I'm a follower of Jesus, or if you're kind of a real emotional type, I'm head over heels in love with Jesus. Say that. By the way, Jesus knows full well that that will cost you and that this will offend people. That's the reason I wasn't saying it. If you actually say, I'm a follower of Jesus, people are going to take offense in our age. But I want to confess him before people. Um, we come to verses 34 and uh, 35 where Jesus says, and this is one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture, I believe. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth, but I have come to bring not peace, but a sword. I have a, an atheist friend from high school days, and we've had some conversation, and he, he always points to this, oh, Christians are just so bloodthirsty, and they're so um, ra you know, radically violent. And it goes back to Jesus. And I said to him, have you ever read this passage? It is so clear when you read this in context that Christians are not on the hilt end of the sword. They're on the sharp side, right? What Jesus is saying is this is what's going to happen to Christians. Again, it's that same message of being ready for persecution. And it involves um, being willing to stand up for Jesus even when your family turns against you. And as I have said, that's a reality that some of our brothers and sisters are facing today. Jesus must be your first love above all family bonds. That's a radical saying in any age, in that age especially, but even in our own age that we put him before our families. But it's very important. And it's very important, by the way, for those who are young, um, when you're considering starting a family, when you are considering a spouse, Paul commands the Christians to marry only in the Lord. And that makes sense to me because when one spouse loves Jesus above all and the other spouse loves his or her partner above all, then conflict is inevitable. I love my wife more than anybody else on earth, but I love Jesus more. Tatiana holds 
the second place in my affections. And the only reason that works is it's true of her too, right? We're both uh, devoted to Jesus first and to other, each other second. This is Jesus' radical call. And he basically sums it up by saying, you have to be able, willing to bear your cross. Following me, he says, means following me to the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said at the beginning of World War II, as it was just taking shape, he was in America at that time, and all his friends said, don't come back, it's too dangerous. But he consciously went back, and he said about this time, in a book called Discipleship, which some of you have perhaps read, every Christian must carry a cross. When Christ calls you, he calls you to die. And that was true literally of Bonhoeffer, who a few weeks before the end of the war was executed by the Nazis for his stand against that tyranny. It's true of all of us in some way. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses it will find it. We give ourselves up for when we're following Christ. The final section is where Jesus says, there is a reward for this. Jesus is very aware of the uh, enormous price he's demanding of his disciples. And in the very last verses, the last three verses, he talks about the, the reward. He stresses that costly discipleship will be rewarded. He says, Basically, let's make a deal. I'll give my life for you, and you give your life to me. And in order to show that he's serious about this, he lays down his life even before you have decided whether you're going to agree to that deal. By the way, Jesus doesn't expect us to be heroes. He says it is enough to give a cup of cold water to a thirsty person. That's enough to secure the award, reward, if it's in my name. That comforts me, because I'm not so sure that I'll be one of those, I would be, have the stamina and courage um, and faith to stand up in the face of certain death and proclaim Christ. But I can give a cup of water to somebody who is thirsty. I can do that. And Jesus says, that is worthy of a reward. Many of us don't like the talk of any reward, but it's not about health and wealth here, as it's often put. Proper rewards always correspond to the wager, so to speak. A suitor who wins the affection of a stubborn woman is rewarded by her love. The painter of a masterpiece uh, really isn't all that interested in how much he gets for it. He, the real reward for him is the satisfaction of having created something beautiful. With Jesus, it's like that, too. He says, I give you my life and you give me mine. The reward is um, a compensation for precisely the same kind of thing, an exchange of life. Let me tell you a story about my father at this point um, that we only found out about as a family, oh, maybe 20 years ago. My father died in 1982, and 20 years later, um, we got a letter, my mom got a letter from a doctor who had visited my father while my parents were missionaries in Africa. My father was a doctor in the Congo, and I, where I was born, about in six, 1962, and roughly about that time, 
This fellow med uh, student of my father came to visit in Africa. And he got there, and the first day they spent all day in the hospital from 8 until 6, and they were sitting down for dinner, and my father, the call came in, somebody came in and said, you've got to come. There's a woman out in a remote village in labor, and that baby is not coming. She's going to die. That child needs help. So my father and this doctor got in a jeep and drove for a couple of hours out into the remote area, spent a few hours there, um, delivered the baby, drove back just in time to have breakfast and go to work the next day. And this, this doctor wanted us to know what my father said. He asked my father, so how much do you get for that? What's the compensation? And my father said this to him. He said, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple of eggs, maybe some um, vegetables, maybe even a half-starved chicken. But above all, the incomparable joy that comes from knowing I'm doing exactly what the Lord wants me to do. And that moves me deeply, not just because it's my father. Some of you know him or knew him uh, even here. But because I understand in the meantime that that's true. That's where joy comes from, following Jesus, doing what Jesus asks you to do. One of my favorite songs is still Trust and Obey. I want it sung at my funeral. Happy in Jesus. I want that on my gravestone. Yeah. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I've learned that, not always positively. There have been times when I made compromises or took the easy way out, when I was concerned about my rights and my agenda. And the first thing to disappear when that happens is joy. Still, Jesus never left me, but waited patiently and made his offer again and again. I gave my life for yours. Devote your life to me. Trust and obey. Happy in Jesus. That's the most important thing I've learned in over 50 years of following Jesus. And as a result of that, passages like this one don't bother me that much anymore. What they hold out for us, without saying so explicitly, is the promise of eternal joy. And I am ready to give my life for that. What about you? Amen. Mm -hmm.